everyone, Jessica here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some great news. You all asked for it and we delivered. Top Artist is now on YouTube, which means that you can watch a video version of our interviews so that you can see some of the incredible work that we're discussing with our artists. Just click the link in the show notes and head on over to check it out. Now, let's get on with this week's show. Hi there, and welcome to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Pierce. Today, I'll be chatting with Dorta Mandrup. She's a Danish architect who has made a huge impact on me and on many other designers. I was excited to sit down with Dorta to learn about her background, her sculptural design style, and the stories behind the firm's recent projects. Throughout her career, Dorta has won many awards for her designs. She's worked on social housing projects and kindergartens that masterfully use cheap materials to create playful but elegant solutions. But her most recent work has taken her to some incredible sites, or as Dorta would say, irreplaceable places. Her studio has recently designed a whale museum with dramatic sweeping curves that frame views out to the sea in the Arctic Circle. Her work can be found right on the border of UNESCO World Heritage sites, like in her Wadden Sea Center. And most recently, you can find her work in Western Greenland in the coastal town of Ilulisset. These projects are special because they have beautiful relationships with their site. They don't compete with the natural beauty of each place, but they focus on enhancing the often sacred experience of engaging with such amazing parts of the world. Dorta opens up about this approach to landscape and architecture. If you've been tuning into season two over the last few weeks, you might already know that our conversations have revolved around artists and designers making an impact. Aside from the impact of Dorta's architecture of irreplaceable places, she's made another impact on the practice of architecture. Dorta responded to a 2017 Dezine article with the statement, I am not a female architect, I am an architect. We talk about the hopes she has for future women practicing in architecture and the context of that quote. I can't wait to dive into all of this and much more on the latest episode of the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast, but that's enough for me. It's time to hear from Dorta herself. Let's start off with understanding the phrase irreplaceable places. Yeah, well, it could certainly be a little bit misunderstood as implying that we only work in extraordinary places or beautiful places. Right. In reality, it, it should be understood as a way to emphasize the importance of the context and to emphasize the importance of place. And for us, that is a part of our working method to uh, to try to understand and, and to use the entire situation around a project, a contextual uh, situation, to in a way develop the project. That's clear in a lot of your projects that seem to really integrate landscape and architecture. Is that something that your firm is really conscious of, the line between the two? Well, some of our projects, if you take uh, the Wharton Sea Center, for example, it's about the abstract flatness of the landscape and, and the very wide open horizon. It's also about uh, the, the traditions, uh, the craftsmanship that is actually used in, in the region. It's not about sort of, it's not a regional architecture, but it's about trying to understand the, the, the situation in, in both uh, formal ways, but also in economic ways and in, in sort of direct physical ways. I mean, if we look at uh, the Exile Museum that we just a competition that we just won in, in Berlin. The whole context is all about the history of the place, which is pretty devastating, you could say. It's about the Nazi history, and it's a, it's about trying to relate to that um, and to the 
isolation of, of, of people around uh, or after 33. Uh, so so it's, it's, uh, it's very much depending on each uh, project that we work on. I mean, in the Icefield Center, I think it's very much about the, the, the landscape, but it's also about uh, the time that the landscape has been created in, you could say. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the geographically uh, oldest areas in the world. You could say the bedrock of Greenland is, is the absolute oldest bedrock on, on Earth. So it, it all depends on where we are and, and what is, um, in a way, relevant to, to work with. Of all Dorta's irreplaceable places, Alulaset may feel the most irreplaceable. Alulaset is a coastal town in western Greenland that is sometimes described as the best place to see climate change in action. This is because visitors to Alulaset, and specifically to Dorta's Icefjord Center, will watch icebergs break off and float away. Dorta tells us about this unique site and how the team approached the design. The, the site is uh, on the, in the buffer zone of the UNESCO protected area on the Icefjord is protected because it's a very um, unique phenomenon. Uh, you have the the glacier coming from the from the ice cap, uh, which is quite far away from the Icefjord center, actually. Uh, but what happens here is that the the glacier will uh, carve uh, the icebergs, and they they will kind of slowly move out towards the Disco Bay. But in the Disco Bay, there's a ridge in the bottom of the sea bottom. Uh, that will actually stop the icebergs from moving further out. So they will kind of pack and then uh, when they are melting off, they will, they will in a way calf again and, and move out into the ocean as icebergs. So this whole phenomenon is, is protected by, by UNESCO as a unique phenomenon, but it's also the place where you can actually see uh, with your own eyes the, the effects of climate change because the ice cap has been withdrawing uh, immensely for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And you can, you can for every year, you can actually see how the ice cap is, is visibly withdrawing. So it, in, in one way, it's an absolutely amazingly beautiful place, but it's also a devastating place because you can really uh, see the effects of the climate change. The, the Ashford Center is also dedicated to, to show uh, and to exhibit the importance of ice, uh, but of course, uh, very much also to exhibit how climate change is, is, is happening and what it is doing to the to the ice cap and to the landscape. I also love the way that you describe the issue of designing a building for that because you describe that the center is telling the story of ice, of human history, mm-hmm. and evolution. So yeah. how exactly do those really nuanced and difficult stories kind of become architecture? How do they come from concepts and become sort of details or, or moments in a building? Uh, I think the way we, we looked upon the site of the Ashford Center was very much in, the, in a landscape context in, in some ways, but also very much about uh, building in this kind of it's practical of how, how do you build in this climate? It's most of the year, so you can't transport building materials to Greenland. And also you, you do not have any building materials in, in Greenland, so everything has to be transported there. So basically, all of these different parameters, one of the things about the site was that you could actually not see the ice fjord directly from the site, so you had to kind of uh, move out to the edge of the, the rock or the site to be able to, to actually see the ice fjord. So to exhibit the ice fjord, we had to, to make a, a kind of boomerang shape that would uh, sort of slowly uh, reveal the ice fjord as you move through the building and it's sort of cantilevered over over the edge of the site. 
Um, and then secondly, by working with this boomerang shape, we actually managed not to get uh, snow build up around the building because uh, the prevailing winds are from the west. And by, by shaping the building so it's almost aerodynamic, we could keep the facade free of snow. And we could also keep the, the entrances uh, and most of the building free of snow buildups so it doesn't uh, destruct the building. That's some of the things that Danish Architects has been doing when they've been working in Greenland in the beginning in the 60s. They would uh, kind of, in a way, bring the knowledge that you have from a, a normal Danish experience that you want to have a wind-protected entrance, which actually meant that there were a, like a, a two-story high snow buildup behind the house, so you couldn't actually enter the building. So, so the, this kind of knowledge is, is of course important to understand, and I think that all the technical issues are just as important as the emotional uh, issues, if you could, if you could say so. So. We try to kind of collect all this knowledge before we actually start to conceptualize an idea. So part of the the way we've shaped the building is very much about emotions, you could say, and, and other parts are extremely technical and and sort of very practical, trying to solve different problems. The, the building is sort of floating uh, above the terrain and uh, for two reasons. One is that we wanted to pay respect to the million of years that the bedrock uh, has been on on earth and the the kind of um, humility that you feel as an architect that we we only here for a few minutes in that context and and so the building is very lightweight uh, almost expressing itself as a, a skeleton of a, of a of an animal so it's kind of floating above the the, the ground and and uh, by doing that we can also ensure that the, the melt water from, from the snow from the winter will actually flush underneath the building and and, um, and drain into the to the lake in front. So partly practical and partly uh, emotional. I really love this project. In one graceful move, it meets a technical requirement of combating that harsh Arctic environment, and it creates an incredibly emotional experience. The architectural resolution to both the artistic and the practical are one and the same. This makes a lot of sense when you learn that Dorta didn't always want to be an architect. Quite young, I wanted to be a sculptress, but you know, many different things happened and, and actually I studied medicine for some time and I ended up in architecture school, which was uh, suiting me really well, and so I stayed on. <laughs> Did, do you think that those combinations of artistic and, and technical education sort of influence the way that you approach architecture now? Uh, yes, I certainly think that there's a, um, at least my interests are, are both, I guess, uh, scientific, but also I spend a lot of time trying to understand art and, uh, and listening to music and reading books and whatever. So the whole kind of range of the arts, you could say, is is, is extremely important to me, but also I have a, a sort of a scientific side or a, a side of me is, is really interested in how the world uh, functions, you know, physically. We're standing on two legs, you could say, that I think it's really important that you have knowledge and that the kind of basis or the scientific basis of what you do is well studied. How do you balance learning the science and kind of becoming a temporary expert in these ideas with your current expertise of architecture? Do you work with people who are sort of specialists in these ideas and learn as you go for each project? Uh, we, we try to work in, in teams. We would have experts um, on Greenland in the, t- in the team during the competition as, as consultants. When we were working in Norway during the well, 
Uh, we had biologists as experts on whales in our team. Then, of course, there's everything else like like sustainability and all, all of these different knowledges that, that actually requires expertise and, and, and very specialized people. We would find, you know, the best or try to find the best and, and work with them. And I think that's that's one of the most wonderful things about being an architect is that you actually get to to work with people that are extremely knowledgeable and, and by, by doing that, you always uh, learn new things and, and in a way get to, to understand little bits and pieces of, of, of what surrounds you. And I think that's, uh, that's amazing. That's an amazing thing about being an architect. There's a lot of projects in your portfolio that sort of show how complicated creating sustainable projects in, in difficult climates can be. I wonder if you can share with us or tell us a story about a time that you created something that you thought is really impacting the site. So can you tell us about a time that you created a building that you felt was sustainable and was really making an impact on where it was, that this was a piece of architecture that kind of represented uh, what needs to happen or how architects need to respond to sustainability? Well, I, I, since um, we just opened the Icefjord uh, Centre, it's, it's the first building that comes to mind. Right. Um, but the, because the Icefjord Centre is in, in, in many ways, of course, the content of the building is the exhibition about ice. But also, I think what we really tried to do here was to also make a building that related to the context, also to the social context, you could say. So by creating a building that is um, where half the square meters almost are, uh, open shelter, so anybody can, on their way out in the um, in U- the UNESCO Park area, can use the building as as a shelter. Since you are really in this extremely beautiful but also really harsh climate, you know the the creating of shelter here is in a in a way a, a way of building or creating a human skill in in this vast uh, landscape. And and I think by also insisting on uh, using the roof as part of the path. We have created a, a kind of new public plaza, you could almost say, or it's a it's a it's a public space uh, which is also usable for for the local community. And I think, um, in, in a way, it feels very natural, and it feels very natural, uh, naturally part of that landscape and, and also part of the community. So I think the Astro Center uh, has, in many ways, has many different kind of. Um, aspects uh, to it and, and then of course creating a building where we were taking care of how much um, CO2 of course uh, or the footprint that we created here in this in this landscape and I really think that we've been extremely thorough in trying to reduce uh, the amount of, of uh, transportation and to reduce the amount of maintenance and so I think there is uh, and in the use of materiality and so forth is um, everything is very worked uh, through and I think it, even if you come down to the details uh, one funny story because actually we haven't been there uh, after the opening because of COVID but the, the director of the exhibition uh, center or the, of the Eistrup center says that she can always see when there's a there's a local uh, craftsman coming in and they've been part of the team that is building the been building the house. So they kind of, they they come in and they, they kind of straighten up their back and, and she can immediately see that, okay, so you were part of the building team. And so in that sense, it is definitely in a way landed in the community. There's pride around the building and, and, and it's been built by local contractors. So there's, there's, I think everything kind of came up 
really well for the ISPF Center, and I'm, I'm quite uh, proud of that. Gift giving is an art, and thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to find that perfect present for someone. With so much to choose from, how do you find that special something without hours of searching? Well, that's where My Modern Med Store comes in. Since 2017, we've been curating the best creative products for makers around the world. Whether you're looking for a gift for an artist, architect, space lover, or anywhere in between, we have you covered. One of my all-time favorite things in my Modern Met store is a planter that defies gravity. Yes, really. It's the stylish, life-levitating planter, and it's perfect for all you minimalists out there. It has an angular white pot that hovers over a rich oak base, all thanks to magnets. But if you're lacking a green thumb, there's plenty more in our store to check out. As a listener of Top Artist, you can get 10% off your entire purchase when you use the code TOPARTIST10 at checkout. Again, that's Top Artist 10 for 10% off everything in my Modern Med store. Happy shopping! I was so excited to talk to Dorta this season because she made me rethink the way I talk about women in architecture. Specifically, Dorta made an impact on the field of architecture when she made a somewhat controversial response to a 2017 Dezine article that highlighted contemporary women in the field. One article that I have not written because you've made me think a lot about it is here are some great women in architecture. And the reason why I haven't written that article is because you sort of spoke out and said uh, a phrase to Dezine, I am not a female architect, I am an architect. Yes. Can you tell us about the context of that quote? Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, in a way I had to react. Um, I've somehow, uh, it might have been misunderstood as, a, as an anti-feminist uh, quote, but, but it, it was certainly not. It was um, right. because in, through my career, I've been, you know, when you, when you receive a prize or... Uh, when people kind of, um, you know, say congratulations, I love your architect, it's so feminine. Uh, it's, it's not that I, uh, I'm not provoked by, uh, by the term uh, that my architecture should be feminine, but I, I, I was really provoked that, um, that there were certain lists and certain books and certain little boxes where you could put women in, 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 a, in a way that was very patronizing because it was very much about, uh, wow, uh, how amazing it is that you actually doing architecture and you're a woman. And I think that was, so that was kind of the starting point for me to write this article. And I know that, that a, a lot of um, women architects has been working for many years to create better premises for women to make architecture and I, I, I really admire that and I, I wasn't actually trying to not recognize that enormous work but to me um, I think we need to be more radical now because it's still like you know 50% of, of the architecture school are women and when you follow them 10 years after they are not in the leading positions they're not creating their own offices so so there's a lot of bias still in the in the business and I think we need to be much more radical to insist that we are really part of the architecture realm and 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 we are competing on the same terms of course but that we need to have equal equal terms to compete on also and while you were sort of responding to the varied opinions on that subject you mentioned that when you first got your start, in architecture that you worked on a lot of projects for children or schools mm -hmm, and those sort mm -hmm. of projects. And they were seen as where well, here is a commission that a woman can respond to. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and while you appreciated those projects, it mm -hmm. felt 
you know, you weren't being respected as an architect. Yes. Uh, do you feel that has changed? Do you feel that the projects that you're working on now, you're viewed as an architect instead of being seen as, as just a, a female architect? Yes, I guess uh, experience helps a lot and, uh, and also getting older um, helps. And, and of course, um, you know, building up your portfolio helps. Uh, but it's quite um, obvious if you see some of the great female architects uh, like uh, Grafton or um, I can mention many other really, really great uh, uh, architects that are also female, and that it, it, it has, it seems like it takes, an, a, it takes much longer time for women to, in a way, establish themselves as, not as female architects, but as architects. And... Uh, uh, I wonder why that is, but I think it is because um, it is actually still quite difficult to to get uh, or to be um, to have authority uh, in in the in the building business uh, because it's still uh, a sort of a boys club. Uh, the the clients are most of them are men, uh, and there will be this kind of this kind of understanding uh, between men. Uh, you know that is so much easier than you know being a woman and um, and and have, having to to kind of push your way into that. So aside from highlighting women in architecture in this way that separates them from the mm-hmm. fields that men are practicing in, uh, does your office engage in supporting women in architecture in other ways, or how? What advice do you have for how to do that more productively? Uh, well, one of the things that we are engaging very much in is, is um, uh, you know trying to walk the talk. Uh, what we do is we actually actively look at the people that we have um, employed or the, uh, my colleagues. Uh, we actually, um, and I don't think it's difficult because there are so many really great women architects, uh, but we we do actively look into the balance of the, the management and the balance of the, the leading architects or the senior architects and the managed, you know, so we have a 50-50 balance all the way through and I what we try to do is also recommend uh, offices or architects that that I know of that are, happen to be women. Uh, so, so I think you, I think really that you need to walk uh, the talk, and I think you need to be very precise uh, with whatever you do um, by insisting on equality in the office. Um, you can also insist on, on on that the people that you work with, I mean, the collaborators, the uh, the consultants, uh, everybody that you kind of. Uh, work with that they have the same uh, ambitions at least to to have as equal and diverse uh, offices as possible. So in that in that way, I think you know you can spread uh, the ambitions, uh, and I think you have to demand that uh, also. I mean, we, we would never we would never work with somebody that uh, are not even clients that doesn't share uh, you know democratic uh, beliefs or or ideas on on diversity and and equality. This season, we are letting you ask the questions through a session we call Ask the Artist. Here are some of the things you wanted to know about Dortmandrup. So our first Ask the Architect is from at Isovist, and it is what architects influenced you as you completed your architectural education and started your own practice? Uh, that's a great question because I've had many, I've had many uh, heroes, you can say. But, uh, but when I was uh, in architecture education, uh, it was kind of right uh, uh, at the postmodern times, and I really never felt uh, comfortable with postmodernism. So 
So I was kind of trying to find something I could grab or hold on to. So um, I was very influenced by uh, by the Japanese architects of the of the time. It was Toyo Ito, uh, it was uh, Itsuko Hasegawa, which were kind of the modern architects uh, at that time. But also, of course, the the older uh, Japanese uh, architecture, because I was very preoccupied with with the with the notion of a building being extremely uh, temporary or lightweight, and um, that you have this kind of osmotic uh, relationship between inside and outside. So I think that's quite deep into my in, into my backpack of uh, of, uh, of knowledge. You could say is is uh, is kind of this um, this way of thinking architecture, extremely lightweight, extremely um, um, thin, uh, you know, thin skinned. Uh, then later on, I think, um, you know, I've had many other uh, heroes. I think um, more and more I I look very much into the, the, the 50s architects. I think there's some amazing, uh, both both uh, brutalist uh, architects from the 50s and 60s and, and also some of the, the classicist uh, or, or modern classics uh, from the 40s and 50s. Yeah, those are some great names mm-hmm. and great responses. Our next submission is from at tall David Goofy, and the question is: What is one thing newer architects or designers are lacking? Well, one thing that really is uh, uh, one of the things that really puzzles me, and and, and when I have you know, the younger colleagues uh, in in the office, is the the lack of knowledge of skill, and I think that very much has to do with the computer. Maybe it also has to do with the way uh, you're being taught. It seems like the relationship between skill. Uh, sort of human proportion is really not something that it's not a knowledge that the the younger architects has. So we would uh, in the office kind of very old-fashioned kind of say, could you could you please mark out that space, you know, on the floor, or could you show me how? Uh, because it seems like that's one of the main things I think the lack of uh, knowledge about skill. It's it's not really uh, experience. It's not like okay, I know how big this uh, plaster is. So. And I think we were, uh, it might be very old-fashioned, but we were kind of told to measure everything. So you you know how big Piazza Navona is, or, you know, you, you, know, you have uh, references on scale. That is very useful. That's some great food for thought for any young designers listening <laughs> to kind of interrogate their understanding of scale. Maybe start carrying a tape measure in around. So our next submission is from C.T. Wiggins, and they ask, how easy is it to get started in architecture currently? Well, um, in some ways, I think it's easier now than it was because there's, mm, there's so many channels and possibilities uh, that you have to kind of bring out your work and to, to, to show your work. But on the other hand, it's also uh, more complicated today uh, than it was. And the, I think you need much more knowledge. You need to have maybe bigger organizations uh, and, um, and and the whole kind of complexity of, of a building process um, is different. Uh, so in that sense, it's more difficult. Uh, uh, but in other ways, I think there's there's possibilities of, in a way, also coming around. You don't have to know important people necessarily. You don't have to to kind of move your way through, you know, uh, older architects. Or so I think that in that sense, there's a freedom there today uh, and a possibility of of, of uh, bringing your work out there. Uh, that is great. And I think uh, also the young architects are really good at using social media, 
so forth, uh, which is which is very uh, refreshing, I think. Our next question comes from Jessica. What's the biggest challenge of being the head of such a big team? Well, there's one uh, issue all the time is time. It, it feels like um, the, the time is kind of, uh, that's the one big issue. That's what we talk a lot about in the offices, how to prioritize uh, my time. Uh, but I think that one of the great reliefs for me has been uh, that I actually work with a team that are able to, to supplement me with uh, everything around the design process. So only, I'm only doing design now. I didn't do that earlier. I was also doing you know, everything. And, and now I have extremely competent people around me that, that are part of the management and that are, are really taking wonderful care of, of everything else than just the design process. So That sounds like a great place to be in your career that you can finally focus on the design and have a, a team to support you and and all of their functions. Yeah, that is that is um, a privilege. I have to say it's wonderful. Our last question is also from Jessica. What do you think the architect's responsibility to the environment is? Well, I do think that, that architects has to take the lead um, in, in, in trying to make our business as sustainable as possible. Since uh, when, you, when you read um, statistics, uh, almost 40% of, uh, of building a building is actually taking almost 40% of the CO2 footprint that we leave right now. So we really need to be, to be seriously involved in um, changing that business. Um, it doesn't seem to happen fast enough. And of course, uh, we need to, to, have, uh, uh, to bring our clients into the, the, the to, to be conscious uh, about uh, that they are actually also responsible. So what we... Uh, try to do is, of course, to to convince the clients as much as possible to to work in, in a more sustainable way. Um, but I, I I do think that we have a big uh, to, uh, responsibility to, to do that and to actually uh, spread the knowledge that we have because we do we do need a lot of knowledge to be able to actually act sustainably. But we also architects are the the, the profession that are actually able to to collect. Uh, all this knowledge into um, in, into uh, something that is practically possible. That was another session of Ask the Artist. If you're just joining the show, this is a series we have been doing all throughout season two on the Top Artist Podcast. To hear your own questions on the show, be sure to keep up with us on social media, where we'll be releasing sneak peeks at new guests. You can even hear your own voice on the show if you submit your Ask the Artist question as a voice memo through our website. And then our last question that we ask all of our guests, and it's the focus of this season, is what impact do you hope your work will have? I, I do hope, um, since I'm, I'm also teaching a, a little bit, um, I do hope that there's there's a, a method or there's a there's a, an approach in what we do, which which is so much about trying to expose the contextual possibilities or contextual. Uh, potential, and I, I do hope that we will have the possibility, at least in a small way, to influence the the way of thinking of place and, and context, uh, and in that sense, to kind of make context important again, uh, but in a, in a in a different way, and, and also in a in a way that that has to do with the, with the full context. I mean, with the with the social, economic, um, uh, sustainable context. So, yeah, that would be wonderful. So how do our guests keep up with all of that? How do they find you on social media and keep up with all of the great projects that are coming out? 
Well, mainly our website, dormant.dk, uh, and uh, also we have an Instagram profile. Uh, we're not all that active on Facebook, but uh, mainly Instagram and, and the website. So we'll be sure to link all of that in the description so people can keep up with you. And we're so excited to share this full episode. So thanks for taking the time to join us. I hope you really enjoyed learning about these elegant projects and beautiful parts of the world and all of the other interesting things we talked about this episode. If you aren't already following our social channels, now is a great time to head over because you'll find images of the Ice Fjord Center, the Whale Museum, and more projects that we talked about. Our socials are also a great place for you to give us recommendations on who you want to hear next. You can also use our socials to submit your own questions when we release new guests for Ask the Artist. Be sure to listen in next time when my co-host Jessica Stewart will sit down with illustrator Nicholas Smith. This episode will cover activism, art, and so much more. It's sure to be a good one. If you love the stories you hear on the podcast, you can keep up to date on all things interesting in art and culture by supporting My Modern Met and the show through our membership program. Just go to My Modern Met and click the membership button in the upper right-hand corner to see all the cool benefits you can get, including ad-free reading. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for being a supporter of the show. We cannot wait to share more fun and interesting interviews with our favorite artists and designers. We'll see you then.